outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 147. Today on the show, we're joined by Eric Pysar, an electrician and avid deer hunter from New York, who's taking the idea of a rutcation to a whole new level. And in this episode, we learn how Eric consistently pulls off multiple Pope and Young bow kills on his annual DIY rut hunting trips. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today, we're without my co-host Dan again, as he's unfortunately under the weather, but uh, here's hoping to a speedier recovery. I'm not alone, though. Joining me here shortly is a man by the name of Eric Pysar. And I discovered Eric last year, actually, while working on an article for Outdoor Life that I was calling crazy for the rut. And the basis of that story was that I was going to find and profile a number of different DIY hunters who go above and beyond what normal people do during the rut. You know, these are guys I was hoping to find guys that were just super, super hardcore about hunting the rut and that have extreme levels of success doing it in their own unique way. So as I started combing my personal network and the interweb and all that kind of good stuff, I came across this electrician from New York named Eric. And word had it that Eric was taking these kind of crazy extended trips out to the Midwest every fall and killing great bucks every year, and then like a bunch of great bucks every year. So I got Eric on the phone, and I started talking to him, and lo and behold, it, it was all true. This guy was heading out to states like South Dakota, Nebraska, Iowa, Illinois, and some others. And he was coming home with two or three or four different bucks per trip. And these were big mature bucks too. And he was doing all this without owning any land out there, without using Outfitter, without having a lease. He was just going to public land spots and different little pieces he got permission on. And, you know, the more I heard, the more impressed I was. And Eric's story ended up making it into that article in Outdoor Life. And ever since those initial conversations, I've wanted to get him on the podcast to, to dive more deeply into that stuff and to share what he's doing with all of you. So finally, today, I'm able to do that, and I'm pretty pumped about it. And I think Eric is is just a perfect example of a normal guy, just like a lot of you guys and like, like me, who's just tore up with whitetails and who's decided to work hard all year round 
and sacrifice a lot of other things in order to be able to chase that whitetail passion that he has during the fall. And I think what he has to share will be able to help a lot of you guys and girls out there who might want to try something similar in the future. So no matter what, I think if you hunt managed ground or public land, the Midwest or the South or somewhere in between, I think you're all going to be able to learn something today from Eric's matter-of-fact, no-bullshit approach to hunting mature bucks. So with all that said, I want to kick things off briefly here with our Sitka story, and then we'll get Eric on the line. So our Sitka story today comes from a guy named Mike Massey, who grew up hunting and chasing whitetails in Florida, which I think as many of you know is not exactly a big whitetail mecca. But when Mike finally headed up towards the Midwest, he found out that whitetails and hunting up there is just a little bit different than back home. And I looked up on top of this, uh, on top of the draw on this ridge, and I could almost, it was just getting that time where, you know, you, it's just some silhouetted stuff. Um, I really couldn't tell. I'm looking through some trees, and this, this deer, this mature buck comes up and snort wheezes. And it just, it made the hair stand up on my on all of my body. I mean, it was like, wow. Okay. And that was probably that moment where I'm like, this, this is what it's about. Uh, and I, I remember my bug was just pumping. Um, <clears throat> you know, you grow up watching these TV shows and, and you never get to experience that down in Florida. Uh, I, you know, I've been hunting pretty much my whole life and, and I, I was never able to, but literally the first couple of hunts that I hunted out of state during prime time, um, and with this case, it wasn't even prime time. I mean, a deer snort wheezing in September is, is a little funny. Um, and here I am, you know, coming up as a, as a young guy at, in South Florida, never really get to experience that stuff. I'm, I'm grunting at this deer and I'm, and I, I'm snort wheezing at a deer in September. And I'm thinking, <laughs> you know, that's you don't read that stuff. You, you, we, we, you're taught, you watch the old timers and Tom Rand and Steve Potts on, on the, uh, Stan Potts on the, TV and they're not they're not snort wheezing in September. Well, well, I did it. I I just I went and you know what what the heck? And sure enough, I got a reaction like I never, um, like I never thought possible, because awesome. it was like, oh, is, this is how it's supposed to be. So the real deal. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> the real deal. Mike Massey is a Sitka whitetail ambassador, and this was a Sitka story. And if you'd like to someday make a Sitka story of your own. Visit SitkaGear.com. And now, let's get back to the show and get Eric Pysar on the line. All right, with us now on the line is Eric Pysar. How are you doing, Eric? Good. How are you doing, Mark? I'm well. Um, you know, like we were like we were just talking about a few minutes ago before I started recording, um, I had such a good time chatting with you last year when I worked on this article about you that... For a while now, I've wanted to try to get you on the podcast to, to kind of dig in deeper. So I'm really glad we can do this. So thank you for taking the time to do this, Eric. Yeah, no problem. Uh, I like talking about deer hunting, so it should be fun. Yeah, ditto. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm curious, Eric. You know, when we talked last time, um, I was really asking a lot of questions about how you hunt the rut today, you know, what you're doing these, t these days. But I, what I never did get to hear from you was how you got into this. How did you get so into hunting? When did that all start, Eric? Well, I uh, started probably when I was, uh, maybe 12 or so. I got into archery, you know, just shooting around the yard. Um, this is, you know, back a long time ago. And, uh, I had a, luckily had a, a neighbor that, you know, really liked to hunt. Um, so I would spend, 
a lot of time down there. Uh, no one in my family haunts at all. Not, not a single person. Um, so it's just kind of weird that I got into it, but, uh, that's how I started. I started out just shooting those red bear recurve bows around my yard. And back then they had archery in school. So I remember getting on the bus with a bow and arrows. And <laughs> That's awesome. Actually shooting in school. I don't know if they do that anymore, but probably not. I wish my school had that. <laughs> so, so, so you started shooting the bow then. When, when did you end up killing your first deer? Well, that took a long time, actually, from the time I started hunting. Um, when I started hunting, I didn't have much equipment. Um, there wasn't any hunting shows on tv didn't have a computer or anything like that you know so basically i was getting uh you know psyched up for my neighbor who haunted a lot um but yeah i just had uh geez my first my first bow was a big long white tail about air white tail big long thing with i don't know had four or six wheels on it big giant thing i remember the day i got it uh i remember how much it cost it was 55 dollars from cabela's <laughs> and <laughs> it was just yeah that's how i that's how i started by i didn't get a deer for a long time and like i would have been happy with any deer you know any anything and that didn't happen too quickly um <laughs> I was actually, shoot, I think I was hunting for maybe three years before I even knew there was a, a bow site for the bow. That's how <laughs> pathetic I was, really. Pretty pretty bad. I remember my first year of actually hunting, I I missed hmm, at least 15 shots a year. Oh, no. <laughs> that is tough. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it was bad. I was bad. I was horrible. <laughs> so... <laughs> So what I forgot to to ask was, was this all happening in New York, or where was this when you were growing up and learning to hunt? Uh, yeah, right in New York, up, upstate New York, um, about, about even with the middle of the state on the Massachusetts side. I, was, I live right near the Massachusetts border here. Okay. So it's probably not an area that is just overrun with deer either, right? Is it a, kind of a relatively tough place compared to maybe some of the Midwestern states that, that a lot of people hunt? Oh, well, back then it was a lot different. There was tons and tons of deer around my area, just not a real lot of big ones, just lots of them, you know, just, but I don't remember, you know, well, maybe it's because I just, didn't know how to get to them, but I don't remember any big bucks at all <laughs> back then. And, you know, I'd see them in the fields and, you know, there was a lot of farm country I could drive around. Bob, not then. I, I, this is before I had a license, but, um, you know, there's just, there was a lot of deer back then since, you know, this modern time, there's a lot, lot less. They just have them, you know, killed right back. Just keeping them a, a lot lower population of them these days. So, so you struggled those early years. But, when, 
when did you when did the switch flip for you when you went from the struggling hunter to all of a sudden a very successful hunter was that you know was this something that happened you know once you killed that first deer then it just clicked and you were going with it or is this something a little more recent it was years and years before i got anything great so uh it took me a long time just to get one deer and um uh, my first year with a bow was a button buck. That's it. And I was real happy about it. <laughs> real, real happy, you know. So I, I finally got one. It was just great. And after that, you know, it seemed like I would get a deer once in a while. But it was always, you know, always a small buck or a doe. And that went on for a long a long time uh i was like 14 when i first got my first license to bow hunt and geez i didn't kill i didn't kill anything that great until maybe 2000 you know after the year 2000 but prior to the year 2000 i just didn't kill anything big but i always got you know, I got to the point where I always could get my deer, and then I wanted to do, try something. I wanted to try something better, or you know, try something. You know, I wanted to just really all I wanted to do was get a ten pointer. That was my first goal, just to get a ten pointer. Um, so that took a while. That's mm-hmm. pretty awesome. Do you remember? Do you remember that first ten pointer? Yeah, I do remember the first ten pointer because it, it it wasn't in New York where I lived. Um, by the time I was kind of thought I was okay at getting a deer, you know, any any deer. Um, that's when hunting shows started to come on once in a while, and this is still before I had a computer. So I started to learn that there was bigger deer and better places to hunt probably than where I was hunting. So, you know, after a long time of being really happy doing what I was doing, but then I decided I just wanted to take a trip. And the first trip I took was actually to Saskatchewan to go on an outfit, outfitted deer hunt. Uh, that was in 2001. And I went there and went, to the a real remote place it was just awesome i loved it and uh way back and the way back and who knows where i was way north in saskatchewan i finally got my first 10 pointer with a rifle i didn't go bow hunting that year wow on rifle hunting was it one of those big yeah. chocolate horn beautiful bucks like you see up in canada it, yeah it was uh you know, probably 150, around 150-inch deer, just a big, you know, two-foot spread on it. Jeez. Big, you know, 24-inch main beams, just a big, big giant deer that might have been almost going downhill. I don't know. He's real. I didn't know anything about aging deer, but he just, I had the feeling this one was an old, old deer just looking at him. Yeah. So since that uh, point... You know, 
as as I know now from talking to you in the past, now I know that you go on these big hunting trips every year, but lots of times you're going, you know, you're doing it all yourself and you're hunting some private, some public, and you're hitting multiple states. Did that start right after that first hunt? You know, you, you went out there, you killed your 10 pointer. And then after that, did you start doing these trips every year or when did that, when did um, you start doing that? Well, I just really, I went to Saskatchewan. It was awesome. So I actually went there three more years or two more years, two more years. Uh, and it's kind of expensive, and up in Saskatchewan, you have to use an outfitter. I was kind of new to the game of traveling around to, to go deer hunting. Um, but, yeah, I, I did good the second year. I actually got a 194-inch 17-pointer the next year up there. Wow. Um, then the third year I went up there, I wanted to bow hunt, so I did. I, I didn't use a gun, and it wasn't the greatest thing in the world but I, I did wind up getting a okay buck it was an 11 pointer not not the biggest thing but at least i got it with a bow it's pretty happy about that so after that you know i just can't really afford to go to canada every year as much as i liked it and i decided that i would start going to the united states just places i had heard about and and try you know try so that's how i started after i went to canada i just decided that i didn't want to really you know I, I outfitters are okay but i was more leaning towards like well what can i do you know just on my own you know for so sure that's how my thinking kind of went yeah and uh so you know I hunted quite a, you know, I hunted quite a little bit around the Northeast, but then, uh, right around that time, early, it must have been two, 2005 actually was the, was the year, the first year that I went to the Midwest. And I actually drew, this is the craziest thing, I drew a zone five Isla tag with one preference point jeez which which doesn't happen anymore these days but so yeah that was like one of the first places i went and illinois was a big everyone wanted to go to illinois and i guess people still do um i don't think it's the best place anymore but so coming from new york so good yeah so coming from new york when you first started hunting the midwest on these trips of yours what was that like? Was it uh, was it as big of a difference as you were expecting? Was it as good as you thought it might be based on TV and different things like that? That first year, first couple of years. Oh, yeah, it was it was way better than even what I thought because <laughs> I could take everything that I learned here and go out there where there was you know just actual deer that were big and nice and it's and it was. Uh, I don't want to say it it's going to make people mad, but it was actually a lot easier to hunt in the Midwest than in the Northeast. Yeah. A lot easier. And mainly I'm, I'm thinking just because, you know, maybe I don't even know what the percentage is, but a lot of the land is just field. So, you know, that takes out a whole bunch of land. You don't have to walk around. And it just, 
makes it easier to predict what they're going to do. And, and they're actually there to be had, you know, they're, they were out there. So yeah, that here. makes a big difference. You can't kill a big one if they're not there. <laughs> yeah. They, you have to be in the spot where they exist. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so since then, Eric, you've been going out. Well, I guess first I'm curious to hear, um, what all these different states have you hunted now? You mentioned Illinois and Iowa, but where else have you gone and hunted now in these different areas for your trips? Oh, well, in the in the Northeast, New York, of course, and then I've hunted in Maine, which is a a real tough one. Uh, hunted in Massachusetts, which is right next door here, so I can do that all the time. But out in the Midwest, in the Plain states, I've gone to Ohio, um, you know, Illinois, Iowa, Nebraska. South Dakota are, are the places I've been. Okay. And now that you've been doing this for a while, I, I already know the answer to this, but but for those listening, what kind of success have you started having now, now that you've done these trips? Tell me about these trips. They're pretty long trips, and you're usually doing pretty darn well. Can you can you kind of give us a high-level yeah. overview of how these <laughs> usually end up going now? Yeah. Um, I remember in 2008, I started hunting um, uh, Nebraska and South Dakota at the same time, and it was awesome. I was on my own, doing my own things, looking at whatever land I could get on, looking at all kinds of different public land. But yeah, and that, that first year, 2008, I wound up getting uh, geez, a nice, I, I wound up getting a nice deer in South Dakota and a nice deer in Nebraska. And uh, 2009, I didn't do as well in Nebraska and South Dakota, but I I went to uh, Ohio after that and and got a nice deer. And then 2010, I I, I shot, I forget where I was, uh, I think I was mostly in Nebraska. And you could get two two tags in Nebraska. Plus, there was an Indian reservation I was hunting on, and South Dakota. So, I think in 2010 and 2011, I wound up getting. Uh, 2010, I actually went to Iowa as well. Um, so I wound up getting four, you know, Pope and Young size bucks between Iowa, South Dakota, and Nebraska. So that was a three, a three state hunt. Again, um, wow. 2009 was a three state hunt as well. 2011, um, it was a two state hunt, but I had I was able to get three tags in Nebraska because one was a reservation tag, and at that time Nebraska had a two a, a two uh, block limit, and then South Dakota had a tag too. So. So yeah, it's been pretty good on the good years. Yeah, know? yeah, pretty good. So um, and that kind of that kind of thing continued on from 2011. I mean, I remember you mentioned some some of those hunts 2012, 13, 14, 15. You continued to fill three or four tags with really nice bucks in almost all those years, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. 2011 was like like a really good year. Uh, 2012, um, that's, 
the year that EHD hit my area that I hunt really bad, really, really bad. Um, I did get a couple bucks that year, but not quite, you know, there weren't as many left to choose from. So ever since 2012, it hasn't quite been the same out in that area. Um, but I did, they have done well every year. I mean, it doesn't kill everything. Right. It right. makes it a little bit harder. Um, so how, but yeah, I, how long are these trips? You're going out here hitting multiple states and you're coming all the way from New York. How much time are you spending out here every year? And what time of year is it that you're doing these trips? Well, it's always pretty much the same thing. I, whatever state I'm going to wind up with, I check out their gun season and my trip, I schedule my trip for, um, the day to last until the day before gun season ends. So I count back three weeks from when gun season starts. And that usually is the first two weeks of November and the last week of October. And that's just about the time frame every single time. There aren't too many states, I don't think, that have a gun season prior to the second week in November. Most of them you get at least two weeks of bow hunting in November. Yeah. How do you how do you manage to do that? How do you take so much? How are you able to spend so much time out there? Um, I just have to work the whole rest of the year, and I have a nice boss, and I just have to. It's always been a thing with me, and that I'm I'm just not going to be around. You know, it just it doesn't matter. I'm whatever's happening doesn't really matter because I'm. Going deer hunting, pretty much, is the, is the really the bottom line, <laughs> and, it's, and it's been that way my whole life. I mean, even when I hunted around here, even when I was learning how to hunt, I mean, there were seasons I hunted every single day of bow season, which in New York back then was a month. So I had a few years of that, but yeah, I uh, I just like that time period, and I don't think that's too much to ask to have three or four weeks to yourself. Yeah. So, so yeah. I gotta, I gotta believe that to be able to do that, you, you know, like you said, you've got to work all the rest of the year. You've got to probably sacrifice some other things. You probably don't get to go on many other vacations. Maybe you probably have to save up some money, but you know, would you say that's fair? Like could more people do some trips like this to some degree if they chose to sacrifice some other things like maybe you have? Yeah, definitely. Because you know, I'm not rich. I'm I'm an electrician. Uh, in New York, you know, it's it's a good job, but it's not going to make me millions. You know, so I would say, yeah, that's you're exactly right. I do have to, you know, I'm a big fisherman too. I love fishing, and I had to pretty much cut out my summer fishing trips. To just to be able to just say I'm going to be gone for hunting, you know the the job is they're good and they it's been they've been good to me. But one more <laughs> summertime trip is probably going to break their backs. <laughs> you know, so you know as it was last year, I was planning on going hunting, and then I got I was drawn for a main moose tag, so I had to squeeze that into the middle of my work schedule. That was tough. 
Yeah, <laughs> I but, bet. A, a, th- a three week, a three week trip. When you're going out here on this this rut hunting trip, what is that? What is that like? I don't think many guys or girls hunt like you do for three weeks straight. Um, and from my, what I know, you're, you're hunting every one of those days, right? I mean, tell me about what that's just like as a, an experience. Is that exhausting? Is that just, is it fun the whole time? Is it tough? Is it, I don't know how, what's that like? for It's, people? it's fun the whole time and it's, and it's the way it works. It's just, it wouldn't work. And if I did a one week vacation, it just wouldn't work the same. It just, you have to be there to, well, I'm a raw hunter. I, I love the raw. I think that's just the best time to cash in, and it's when you're going to see the most activity. Um, so for those three weeks, it's uh, it's really awesome. What happens is I get there, and of course, I don't have. I can't scout prior to getting there. I can't take a 21 hour drive just to scout somewhere in the summer or take the time off or whatever. So when I get there, that's the first thing I have to do is I have to scout, check it out. Um, the good thing is if you, I've been going to the same places sometimes, I, I mix it up, but I, I go to the same places also. And, you know, that's really what you got to do is build, build up, you know, just go there once. So it's twice, you're going to be twice as good, and you go a third time, you're going to really know what's going on there. Once is tough, but you could do it. You could really just do it. And you just got to sacrifice the first little bit. You might have to drive around a little bit. You might have to, you know, explore. You might have to, you know, you should have a list prepared of all the places you want to go. So you could just boom, 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 hit them all get as many in as you can and really that's not the greatest hunting time in the last week of october so it's a good time to kind of just check things out but by the second you know by the first week in november or halloween even you kind of want to have a couple spots ready for sure because that's when things are going to start heating up and that's when they're going to start to move so I like to have a, a few places ready where I know I can go. And then, you know, hunt as much as you can. And if if it's not productive hunting and you feel, you know, you're not really doing anything, then go look for another place and keep, keep kind of doing that as much as you can, you know. Um, and the key to the whole thing is, uh, and I've seen it happen to people before, they go on a hunt for a week. And you get six straight days of south wind, and the deer just don't move. They just it's too hot for them to move, so they they can't. And then all of a sudden, poof, it gets cold, and then boom, you start you know it's just like a light switch. So somewhere, I would say in that somewhere in that three week period, you're going to get three or four killer days. That's just unbelievable. But you can't predict what those days are going to be, really. Um, you just have to be there. So that's how, and, and a lot of these trips, I'll go for three weeks, and I've killed three bucks in like three back-to-back days. 
Wow. Because all of, all of a sudden it's nothing. And then boom, you get one. And then you move to the next, you know, next state or the next tag. And boom, you get another one, you know, right away. And that happens quite a bit. Quite a bit. What are those conditions that typically spark it for you out there? It's just cold. Cold. Anything that gets cold, um, that's those are the best for me. And really, uh, a lot of people love talking about the moon. Eh, you know, the moon doesn't really affect me at all because I'm there to haunt those you know, whether it is three weeks or whatever it is, I'm going to hunt every day anyway. So the moon doesn't really, doesn't really play into it for me. Um, but the weather does, and it's just about always some kind of cold weather. That's, that's starting things up. Yeah. Um, you mentioned, you mentioned early on that when you start these trips, that you sometimes, especially if it's a new property, you're sacrificing the first day or maybe two to scout. Um, and you mentioned maybe even still trying to get permission on a place. But let's say you've got you've got permission on a place, or you've picked out a piece of public land. Um, what does that first day like? What specifically are you doing? How are you scouting? What are you looking for? Like, I mean, give us the. I'm curious about the details. What exactly? How far do you go into these places? You know, how do you learn a spot quickly? Yeah, um, it, it depends how big it is. Um, some places you just can't cover them in a day. Other places are you can walk the whole thing in half a day. So what I like to do, um, what I really like, if I know the area and I've been there before, it's a lot easier. I, but I do like to just take one walk through where I think, right where I think the deer are going to be. And just, you know, a lot of times in the Midwest, there's woods and then there's fields, you know. So I'll walk the woods or or the edge of the woods in a field or something. And I just want to walk it once. Meanwhile, I'm mentally evaluating everything I see and thinking about possible places. And usually if I'm like, eh, I don't, you know, looks good, but, you know. Maybe not, you know, I just keep going and I try to get at least one place where I'm like, oh man, you just look at it and you're like, I know I could kill a buck here. I know it. And so hopefully, you know, depending on what the access is, hopefully you could just maybe walk through once and then access, you know, through a field right to the point you want to be in the woods. So you're not walking back and forth all the time. But one walk through during a rut hunt, eh, it doesn't it doesn't mess mess up the deer too bad. Still it, able to get them. Yeah. yeah. What what are these but killer I, what do these killer spots look like? You mentioned you find these spots where you're just like, oh, I can kill one here. What kind of things are you looking for that well, tell you that? I like rivers. Rivers are always in the Midwest. People want to farm. You know, it's mostly farmers. And farmers want fields. They don't really want woods. But wherever there's water, rivers, even small ones, they have to leave some trees. Like a small creek and a ravine, you know, they have to leave some trees for erosion. So 
just seems like any kind of river and the bit like big rivers they're awesome too the bigger the river the like the more trees are on the sides of them and uh you know that's that's where the deer are going to be and you know the rivers you know they collected all the the best the best soil it's washed off all the land so there's just good minerals good cover usually a good good place to be but there's you know lots of other things to look for too but uh so i'll get in a spot maybe with a river and just walk it until you know by the time i'm out walking around you should be seeing scrapes and rubs you know maybe an area torn up where you know bucks have fought or just tons and tons of tracks you know just any kind of heavy more than normal sign is just kind of what i'm looking for all the typical stuff rubs scrapes you know anything that's just going to kind of tell you that deer are using it and they're using it a lot you know yeah it just seems like every place i get to there'll be one spot where you just i can't explain it i'll just look around and just you just look at the train and you look at the sign and you just kind of know that sooner or later there's going to be a buck cruising through yeah so that rutting sign the scrapes rubs that kind of stuff it sounds like that you're just looking at that as a general sign of there being a lot of deer activity or are you actually saying okay there's a rub line here so i want to set up along a rub line or because i see this scrape here i'm going to hunt this specific spot i mean how do you factor that specific sign into how you're going to hunt well a lot of it you just gotta like kind of know you know everything that you've built your whole life figuring out about deer you just have to kind of apply that and you have to say well you know deer is most apt to you know come through this hourglass pinch point rather than expose himself in a prairie or you know eventually you know too many things cross in one spot you know you just you just kind of get a a feeling, you know, and after years and years and years of hunting, you, you kind of, you kind of can figure that out. I, mean, I don't, it just seems to come natural to me, maybe. Uh, but it's just something where you just, I don't, I, maybe uh, someone else would walk right through where I thought was phenomenal and now want to hunt there. I've had it go both ways. Some of my friends are awesome hunters and sometimes they pick a spot and I'm like, why are they doing that? And they must've <laughs> just had that, that good feeling or something, but right. Um, yeah, it's a lot of it's just instinct and feeling. And... I'm curious. Do you, if you were to think back on some of your past seasons, is there any particular place you can specifically remember that you ended up, you know, having this feeling and it ended up being a spot you killed a deer? Do you remember a specific place like that you could describe just so we can, you know, so we can kind of see this particular instance that did pan out and we can kind of better understand why why you were successful there? Yeah, um, 
let's see, there was a, there was a really good spot on uh, public land in, in South Dakota, and just it was pretty darn hard to get to it. You had to go through down a ravine into some thick cedars, and you'd be poking your eyes out. And it was just the nastiest thing. And I actually, I went to that public land three times before I figured out how to even get into it. And then once I figured out how to get in, um, I just went down in and got past the nastiest stuff you could imagine. And then, whew, it just opened up into this oasis. And it was just, I was out of the cedars. And then all of a sudden, there was a, like a dry creek bed. And it was just right up the side of the public land, and it just created the perfect little valley funnel. It just was, like, awesome. And then, you know, you could just see when the deer were coming off the hill, there's a couple trails. But they all kind of crossed up in this spot, and you could see a, a distinct straight line. And you, you just I just knew deer were traveling it. I went a little further up. And, uh, sometimes I don't like to do that. You know, once I find a good spot, I like to just stop right there and hunt. But, you know, sometimes your curiosity gets you in first time, but th this time was my first time in there. And I went a little further up and I found the ground just shredded, shredded right up. And, uh, I looked and there was a pine laying on the ground. It busted right off. You know, you find people see deer with bust tracks all the time. This, I found where one my time busted off. And I'm like, wow, pretty good sized time. I'm like whatever there was fighting was big, probably. And it just had <laughs> it just had all the like signs of big deer, lots of activity. You know, you could tell. You know, one deer doesn't make one rub, and one deer doesn't make one scrape. A lot if they're good, if it's a good spot, multiple deer always hit the same rubs, hit the same scrapes. It's not one deer scrape. Sometimes it is, or one deer's rub. A lot of times, it's if it's a good spot, many, many bucks will come scrape on the same scrapes, rub on the same rubbed already trees, you know. So that, that one spot I found, I just knew it was going to be awesome. And I went there. And actually, I killed, it was a public land spot, and I killed, I had a standoff with a deer, and I wound up killing it. It just was one of them things where, and it was just at the very beginning of the day, and that deer, it was a nice deer, and I was like, oh, maybe not, maybe I shouldn't have shot that deer. So I, uh, I was hunting with a friend of mine. And I said, hey, you got to go back down in that spot where I, I just killed a deer there, but I just knew there was something way bigger and better in there. Anyway, he went in there the next day and just killed a monster flammer. Wow. Giant so, wide buck. So so I got the like the booby prize that day, but my, <laughs> my friend got, got a real nice giant. Wow. So, How did you – sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that – there's there's lots of lots of spots like that. I just I have good feelings on, and they they wound up being good. So I was curious, how did you end up setting up in there? Um, like, what 
what specific spot did you end up hanging a stand? Was it right over where you saw that sign from the fight, or was it back farther where you originally saw the good sign? And what things were you thinking about when setting up your hunt, your, your tree stand to hunt it the next day, or was it that day you ended up hunting? Um, it, it was, uh, you know, I found the spot and you know started hunting it right away. But it was one of those places where the woods was just a finger, and one side of it was a river. And one side of it was a big giant prairie, actually private land on the prairie. And it was just the only, you know, it was the only good strip of trees. And then out of that, you know, the, the trees were the good spot, but out of that there was a big steep bluff and a plate, you know, just kind of an area that didn't seem the best for travel. But then there was an area that was that dry, flat riverbed that just had green grass growing in it and you could just tell that every deer came off the hill maybe not off on the same trail but everyone passed down that valley hit the scrapes that were down through it kind of it, it just pinched right off almost got it, it was so sparse there was almost nothing and then it opened up into that cedar thing that i had to crawl in to get there so it was just a natural pinched down area and I just went to the pretty much the last scrape before the thing kind of petered out and just hunted right on the end. It was, it was real easy. Um, and that was another place that I could get to by a boat. I later figured out sometimes it takes a while to figure it all out. Uh, That was an example of where I walked in and then, found a better way to boat in later. But, I want to, I'm curious about, um, your stand situation when you, when you're going in there, you know, early in the hunt and you're doing your walk and scouting, do you end up hanging a bunch of different tree stands over the course of those first couple of days and then hunt them over the next week or two or whatever? Or do you just have one set that you're, you know, hunting mobily with, like you've got a tree stand that sticks on your back and then you find sign and you hunt right then. And then you tear down and move on to the next place. What are you doing there? Um, I have the biggest collection of junk stands. <laughs> you ever want to say I got climbing <laughs> sticks. I have, you know, stands of all different types. I have just so much stuff I accumulate over the years. But, uh, you know, it just, it, I guess it kind of depends. Some places I don't mind. Like, you know, some guys don't like, you know, hunting a stand more than once. You know, some guys just want to be completely mobile. and But uh, I don't think it's really necessary with rut hunting that much, as much. So I do have uh, I do have sets that I, I put in. And over the course of three weeks, I might hunt it once, twice. May never hunt it. And, but I put, I put a few out. Um, and then I always have a bunch of mobile stuff, you know, I have the, you know, the light sticks. Um, I do really like a comfortable stand though. Um, the stand isn't comfortable. You just can't stay there all day, you know, and I like to stay there if I have to all day. Um, but yeah, comfort, I, I like to be comfortable. Otherwise you fidget too much. You know, why 
in this day and age, why be uncomfortable when there's so many choices? Yeah, fair enough. And to your your point, you know, especially in a situation like yours or anyone really, when you're going on a trip, maybe cross country, and you're going on that trip to hunt, I mean, you want to maximize your time as much as possible. And during the rut, that all-day set can be important. So might as well do whatever you can to make sure it's possible, which to your point is, is making it more comfortable. Yeah, I mean, I want to do everything that's possible. Um, so I, I bring food, water, nice stand, hopefully a nice stand. If it's a nice enough spot, I can sit in a pretty harsh stand, too. <laughs> <laughs> if, if it's the and right I, spot. I've done that. I've done that, yeah. You know, and sometimes I go in and I plan on, you know, maybe doing a morning hunt scouting my way out and doing something but then a lot of times during the day i change and i'm not afraid to just stay hungry like i might go in thinking i'm going to sit for two hours and sit all day if i think it's that kind of day i'll change my plan you know and just mostly i change it and stay very seldom do i think of sitting all day and then want to leave early that doesn't happen too many times but so what is it then that makes you decide you have to stay? Is that just you've just seen so much deer activity that you got to stay there, or is it some other kind of thing? No, it's usually that, you know, you see the deer. They're on their feet. They're moving. Maybe you just saw a crazy chase, and you know that the bucks are still going to make another loop around, or just you start to see a deer every hour and or it comes time when you think you're going to leave and you're surrounded by deer or just anything that usually involves seeing more deer than what you expected to see or better activity or a big giant buck chase or, you know, something that I'm never usually sitting there. Oh, I didn't see anything. Well, maybe I'll wait longer and longer. It usually doesn't happen like that. But uh, or it could be the wind. Maybe I'll. I'm just. Maybe my second choice. I know the wind is bad, but the wind is good in my first choice. So I just say, well, you know, I better stay here because it's not going to be happening in that other place I want to go because the wind's dead wrong. So. Uh-huh. Now, why did you say that the opposite doesn't happen? So you said you usually won't go to a spot to hunt all day and then decide to move. That Why doesn't that happen very often for you? Uh, usually once I have it set in my head to go sit all day, there's a good reason that I want to do that to begin with. So I stick it out, and I just want to stay. I just... You know, if I, if it's usually if it's, but, and even if I don't see a deer, if I'm set, um, I walked out the door saying I'm sitting here all day. I'll, I'll sit there all day. I usually don't want to quit. I don't want to leave. And that's a lot to do with everything. Never want to leave. I never want to give up. Uh, so I could stick it out. But yeah, I don't, I don't know why the app, like, to me, just you plan to sit all day and you're going to leave early. That's kind of like just like quitting. So it doesn't sound like you've got a whole lot of quitting you. 
I don't like to. It's you know, you know, fishing or hunting. I I want to yeah, I want to maximize yeah. <laughs> all the time. I feel like of of all the people I talk to that are really consistently successful hunters, um, that is just something you got to have. You just you can't quit when the going gets tough. You can't quit when it's you know starts getting slow or cold or when you start getting tired. I mean, oh, yeah. that's when you got to just You're, batten down and stick it out. Yeah, and there's going to be lots of bad times. Of all the time you're hunting, you know, say, I'm, say I hunt for, for a month, there's going to be one day maybe where I get a deer. The rest of those days, of, you know, what well, yeah, was it great? Was it awesome sitting in that tree freezing all day? And you know, you know, there's a lot of bad days, tons of them, tons of them. But you just forget about those and remember the good ones. Yeah, it's all worth it for that those few special moments, right? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, you just you, you just can't give up. You just gotta press on. You might be hungry. You might be cold might be uncomfortable you might have a stick in your back but just who cares it's one one day if you can't handle one day you're just not going to make it doing this kind of stuff yeah yeah speaking of that yeah what about just attitude like how important is a positive attitude to the way you hunt. I feel uh, when we talked last time you you'd mentioned this a little bit and I think it kind of ties into what you just said but I mean, how much does this mental side and the attitude side of things actually help you have the success that you've had? You, you just gotta gotta stay positive. Like if you start thinking the worst, then that's what's gonna happen. The worst. You just every time I go, I don't go to a spot going, "Oh, I'm not gonna see anything anyway. I'll just go." I don't go. It's not like that. I I think I'm going here and. The, any second now, a slammer's coming down the road. I, I just know it, you know. And if I didn't feel like that every time I was hunting, it'd be terrible hunting. I wouldn't even, <laughs> I wouldn't even have fun. I, I, every time I go, I think something awesome's gonna happen. And if I'm not there, I think I'm missing something. So, yeah, and I, a good attitude is pretty good. I've been in camps where the, you know. You get a somebody that's a downer, and that can really that can really drag everyone down. Yeah, you know, quick. Yeah, it's a it's a so, self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. So, and you know, another like one of my biggest philosophies is you you don't even have to do anything that great if you could spend time in a good location. You're probably going to do pretty good. Just those two things, time and location. Just you, if you put in three weeks in a good location, I mean, something, something bound to good is going to happen. You know, so it's, it's just bound to happen. You, something good will happen in that amount of time. Yeah. But you know, in a week, you know, you might just miss it by the weather that week. But uh, like yeah. you, like you said though. You know, even for a guy that only has a week, it, you have to go into that week with that positive attitude and willing to put in all the time because, yeah, you might miss it, but 
if you don't stick it out and try and give it everything you've got, you definitely will miss it. So whether you've got one week or three, right, you got to go in there and, and give it every single little bit you have, right? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I, I can remember uh, uh, a haunt. I actually won a haunt to Illinois. Uh, on a, on, I actually was on the Hunting Beast website, and they had a, a good deer contest. It was really neat. And I, I wound up getting a trip to Illinois. But uh, when I showed up there, it was, uh, I'm trying to remember what time of year it was. It was, I think it was, I think it was like prime rut, rut time. And it was just 70 degrees every day. It was just hot, hot. I mean, you were, your face was frying in the stand. It was just, you know, it was pretty bad. And it was one of those south wind deals where it just blows and, stays warm just every day south 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 and uh i sat every day every day all day and we ready through the heat everything and i was one of the few guys that walked out of there on the very last day i wound up getting a getting a nice buck and uh it was just from just from sticking it out that, that much yeah a couple of years yeah. ago I think it was 2015, maybe we had uh, we had a, a warm first week of November, and I was hunting in Iowa, and a bunch of other friends that were hunting there too, and I ended up being stupid and bailing out for a day and a half to go deal with some other stuff. I thought, well, it's warm, I'm gonna go deal with some family stuff, and um, I had three other friends that were still hunting though, and even though it was like 70 degrees during the day. Three days in a row, they each killed a nice mature buck um, oh. on all three of those mornings. So I missed two of those days, and, and it was just a great it was a great reminder to me that even when the conditions aren't right, and even when you know everyone and all the things, all the signs point to it being a bad day, during the rut anything can happen, and and you do just need to stick it out because you know it can it can still come together. It can, you know they're. The deer aren't going to stop breeding, you know, and if it just takes that one, all it takes is one deer, <laughs> one, you know, one bow could burn everything around and even in the worst of conditions. Yeah. yeah and even the worst times, you never know. Yeah. Never know. All right, well, I think this is a good place for us to take a brief break for a word from our partners. And first, we have our weekly segment with Whitetail Properties. Here's our producer, Spencer Newharth. This week with Whitetail Properties, we are joined by Jeff Propes, a land specialist out of northern Missouri. And Jeff is going to be telling us about what to look for when scouting a property in spring. Well, I think for me, I do a lot, I've been doing a lot of spring scouting for, for a number of years. And uh, I think the number one thing I look for is travel patterns and in the in the trails and through the timber because everything's so open in the spring and uh you can i can back trail these trails coming in and out of thickets and kind of parallel them to where they're the you know field edges and you know to and from feeding sources and bedding sources so i, I really like to walk the trail the beat down trails because that tells me where the deer are traveling you know in the fall and you know throughout the year where you can't see it as good uh, when there's foliage on so you know that time of year this time of year early spring there's no foliage on and the sign is just laid out like a book you can just read it so good and then obviously i look for i look for rubs uh and, and scrapes and particularly rubs uh 
I've got several farms that I hunt. Uh, I own a couple properties, and then I, I lease I lease one. And um, I'm always looking at you know where the bucks are traveling because of the rubs where the rubs are located. And it's pretty simple actually. I just look for where the travel patterns are with the beat down trails. I look for rubs and uh, and old scrapes and just everything's laid out so easy to see in the spring. It's my favorite time of year to scout. If you'd like to learn more and to see the properties that Jeff currently has listed for sale, visit whitetailproperties.com backslash probes. That's P-R-O-P-S-T. And finally, I wanted to share one more update from our friends at Huntera Maps, who earlier this spring launched their new Huntera mobile map, which allows you to get the uniquely high-quality map image that they have usually on their print maps now on your mobile device. And I actually got to use these mobile maps last fall, and during my Idaho elk hunting trip, this map came in particularly handy. It was the last day of our hunt, and we wanted to get up into this new area for the morning hunt and wanted to be there well, well before daylight. So we were up and hiking a couple hours before you know first light. And it wasn't like we had a trail or anything to follow. We were bushwhacking across country. So I used my mobile map on my phone to navigate to our destination. And it was super helpful for a couple of reasons. First off, you know I didn't need to have any kind of self-service, which is hard to get up there sometimes. And the map still tracked my position through GPS. Secondly, different than the maps you'll get from Google or other map apps, the Huntera mobile map has their unique Terra image, which brings together aerial imagery, 3D shading, and topo lines all together to make a map that allows you to see terrain features in incredible detail. So much more easily than with a normal aerial or topo map, I could see the ridge lines, I could see the saddles, I could see the hills that I needed to navigate towards to get to our destination. And I could do all this in the pitch dark just by looking at that map. It was hugely helpful. So with that said, to learn more or to customize and order your own Huntera mobile map, you can visit Huntera.com. That's H-U-N-T-E-R-R-A. And from now through April 20th, 2017, Wired Hunt listeners can get 10% off their order and a free mobile map with every printed map order by using the code WIRED. That's W-I-R-E-D. And again, that's 10% off your order and a free mobile map. Now, with that said, we will now get back to the show. You mentioned a second ago. You mentioned a second ago that um, that it all comes down to time and location, right? You got to put in enough time, and you got to be in one of these, you know, key locations. Um, I know something you mentioned in the past was that you like to look for places that other hunters don't go, especially when you're hunting public land. I'd imagine. Um, how do you find these spots? What are, What are some of the spots that you find other hunters don't go? And how do you get to these places or find these places in the first place? Well, that's pretty much the thing that every hunter is trying to do is go to a place where hunters don't go. You're you just you're not going to find too many places where nobody goes or no. You're not going to find any places where nobody's been. You might find a place where no one's going or no one's going at that time. Um, my my best best hunting technique to get to places where you know there's going to be less people is my boat. And I take it on every trip, no matter what, no matter where I'm going, no matter if I think there's water there or not, I still take it because it's just a Zodiac boat that rolls up into a duffel bag. Uh, it just unfolds. I blow it up. It's got three air chambers. It's got a hard wooden floor. You know, it panels. You put it all together. Uh, it's like nine, nine foot six long, but it will... And it'll take up to an eight horsepower motor, so I bring a little outboard with me. And the boat, 
you could literally fit it in a trunk if you had to this whole setup but uh the the, the boat will it's rated for to carry over a thousand pounds so it's pretty stable it's pretty quiet it doesn't take a lot of water to float it um i use a a motor you know to, i don't have to it has a worse too but uh it's one of the best best ways to get away and these places are rare but they do exist where you'll find you know public land that the only way you can get to it is by water or or uh permission from a private landowner and most of the time the private landowner isn't going to let you walk across their land to get easy access to the public you want to get to so a boat can really do it um, and you'll find places. Uh, I'm planning to hunt to Missouri this year, and I found already at least one place where it's only accessible by a boat. Um, a lot of public land is just designed for people to use it, so there's a lot of trails and everything's opened up. But water seems to be a pretty consistent barrier. Um, and you can get to some really neat places. Yeah. So that's um, finding places where other people don't go. I mean, it's it's hard. It's real hard. Um, when when you're bow hunting, it's a, a little bit better because even if there is other people there, maybe you can just get away from them enough. You know, so it depends on the land. I mean, I hunt on land that's thousands of acres. And I've hunted on little hundred acre pieces, so I guess it all depends where, where you go. You know, it's hard to get away from people in just flat woods. People just walk and walk and walk and yeah. walk, and if they don't, if they don't get wet, they'll keep walking and walking. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so do you when you're actually like when you're planning a hunt then even before you get out there out there do you specifically look for public parcels or places you want to ask for permission that aren't like that are you specifically trying to find places on the map ahead of time online that you know look like they're going to have these pockets that are tough for people to find Yeah I tried my best to do it on online inner cyber scouting to find places um like I said, I'm planning to hunt in Missouri right now. Um, so my list, my list started out of places to go. The first thing I did was I picked out areas that only allow bow hunting. Was my first, you know, separator, I guess, of, of land. So you know, I I come up with a list like that, and then uh, you know, maybe that's maybe they're not all the best. But that's where I like started, and there's lots of places to look for land that a lot of people go online and uh, hit the state, the state land, and a lot of states have good interactive uh, mapping. But there's other land that isn't state land that you could still publicly hunt on. I already mentioned the Indian reservations. Right, you know, I don't think they have the greatest reputation, but there's uh, that's that's one piece of land I've hunted on 
Army Corps of Engineers. They usually have land that you can hunt on in a lot of places. Uh, I think most of their land is around water, which goes hand-in-hand with the boat thing. Um, I've hunted on uh, power company land. It's not listed on the not listed on the uh, state land thing. So um, you just got to keep looking for all the different places that have public hunt, and it's not just the state. Uh, there's other other places that you can look. Um, and then another thing that's I've, I've had happen too, which is really cool, is a lot of states will have a walk-in program. Mm-hmm. I don't know how they work. I, I think they must give people a tax break for people to use their land for hunting. You've heard of that yeah. in, in different states. Yep. Well, w- once in a while, someone will enroll their land, but it won't make the publication of that year. So just before you do your trip, right after the, the public land atlas comes out for the year, most states have them, you call the call the office and say, well, what's been enrolled since the publication? And once in a while, you'll get lucky and you'll find a place that just went in to walk in or whatever the case may be, and you'll get a you'll get a first crack at it before it's well known. You know, that's a good, and that's happened a couple times. I went to Ohio once. And uh, I went to American Electric and Power Land that had just, like, 7,000 acres that had just opened up the year before I got there. Wow. So it wasn't wasn't well known yet. And those those can be pretty good. If you, I mean, it's rare. But if you're on top of it and you're doing your trip and you're planning and, you know, feel like making a call, it, can never, it can't hurt. Yeah, it's a great um, idea. Hey, but most of the people you talk to are super nice, super friendly. Um, and I, I just wanted to mention one other thing about all these hunts I do. There's so many awesome people that have had so much to do with the deer that I've been able to get. And it's, I hate people when I'm hunting in the woods, <laughs> but outside of the woods, I relate people <laughs> and <laughs> most of the, if you just happen to get friendly with, you know, make, make some friends out there and it, and it happens almost every year. If you're, if you're open to it, um, you, you could have some pretty cool things happen. Just a lot of the, a lot of the hunts, a lot of the cool stories that I've had and the successes have just, just then from really meeting some really nice people, you know? So is there, and, uh, any, is there anything you're doing, you know, in particular that just allows you to, to have these opportunities? I mean, do you go to local diners and just chat people up or anything like that, like that you're actively thinking about doing, or are these kind of things just happening by luck? Um, I, they, I think I think they happen by luck, but I I have I have chatted in diners. Actually, I geez, one year it didn't pan out, but I met a guy in Illinois in a diner, just started talking about hunting, and next thing you know, he offered me up a piece of land that has gone on. Wow! 
and I was like, wow, <laughs> you know, and it, you know, it was great. It was on a, you know, a river, on a Spoon River or something like that. But uh, uh, I just can't name. Oh, another just a good people story is. Uh, it's, I hope it isn't too long of a story, but um, let's hear it. A friend of mine, a, fr- a friend of mine, got drawn for a moose tag in 2014 up in Maine. So uh, another friend of mine that I hunt with every year, he had moose hunted in Maine already. He's like, "Oh, oh, you got to go to this guy's camp." You know, we weren't we were going to go moose. I was the sub permittee on this guy's permit, and we were going to just not use a guide. We we're just going up do it yourself moose hunt. He's like, "You got to go up to Gene's camp." You know, so we did. In 2014, um, I started talking to the guy who was kind of friends with my friends from back home already, and he was uh, a little older than me, and he was, you know, a big deer hunter. But he's up way up in Maine, you know, and they they get some nice deer up there. But he he was talking about Iowa a lot, and uh, I he, he was a really nice guy, and. Uh, we were having a lot of fun up there, and I said, "Well, I, I told the guy, I go, I have a really great farm in Iowa that I got permission on, and I said, I, I'm pretty sure that you could get permission to hunt here. You know, just tell me, talk to me, and whatever. So, so this guy from Maine, uh, you know, got his preference points." And I gave him the information to, you know, and he was all, I gave him the people to call and all that. And, uh, roll forward up to 2016 last year. Um, I drew a moose tag, uh, and it was for the same zone that my friend was. And we were, I was going to go back to the same guy's cabins. He rents he rents cabins up there. Lo and behold, he drew his Iowa tag for 2016 last year. So I got up there to moose hunt, and well, actually, I went to scout and to hunt. But uh, I got up there, and he was going to Iowa to a farm I hunted a couple times, and I was going moose hunting. So <laughs> <laughs> the two of us kind of needed each other to. You know, get a little, he gave me some loose advice and tips. And I kind of got him hooked up with a nice farm in Iowa. And by the end of both of our seasons, he had his 150-inch buck, and I had my moose. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. So, you know, just meeting the right people sometimes is everything. Right. And, and like you said, it's it's just about being open to it, you know, being willing to chat up people and being willing to, you know, just engage. I, I, I'm i honestly, I'm guilty sometimes of being always in such a rush. I just want to get to somewhere. I just want to go this place. And, and I always, I sometimes kick myself for not taking more time just to chat with people and, and kind of chill out a little bit. I think that's a mistake on my part, probably. Yeah. I mean, if, if you just can get a chance and you just, you never know when, that kind of moment's going to happen. You really just don't. So, yeah, you know, yeah. maybe, I don't know how it you know happens, but instead of, you know, looking away or, you know, just, I don't know this guy, I'm not going to talk to him or whatever, you know, somehow if you keep yourself open, sometimes 
you just meet the best people and that's that's happened to me and you know that's how i got permission to hunt in iowa you know met some really nice people so yeah it's crazy how the world works sometimes yeah it definitely is. I want to go back a little bit to something you mentioned um, a little earlier. You were talking about how you're planning a Missouri hunt this year and how the first criteria you looked at to narrow down your list of spots was trying to find places that were bow only. Um, can you walk us through the rest of the criteria? Like, How do you continue to narrow down where you're going to end up focusing your efforts to start out? What other things are you looking for before you even get out there? Yeah, well, before I got to making my list here, Missouri's a big state, so I had to, you know, pick somewhere in Missouri to start. You know, I you got the northern part of the state. I mean, you've hunted Missouri, so I actually haven't. Oh, you haven't hunted Missouri. I thought no, I thought you had hunted around uh, it, but been just above the border uh, a little ways. But yeah, well, the first thing I. I started researching and I've always wanted to go to Missouri just I never have and this is going to be the year um so the first thing is well where in Missouri am I going to go every a lot of people I talk to there's a highway that runs east west highway 70 a lot of people say the best biggest deer are north of highway 70 you know in the northern part or the northeastern part you know they're trying to butt up the highway I guess um and get in on that terrain so I was thinking, well, do I want to be there? Do I want to be in the Central? Do I want to be in the Ozarks? You know, and I kind of hemmed and hawed and uh, eventually decided that, well, I'm, I'm guessing that everyone's going to try to get to the northern part of the state and the northeastern part, maybe in particular. So I'm thinking, well, maybe I'll just not, not do that. Um, so I actually decided on... Probably a, a less, I guess it's a pretty big generalization to say all the big bucks are north of Highway 70, but <laughs> um, I decided to, you know, maybe I'll try the middle part of the state where I'm thinking there's going to be less people, less pressure on, maybe less non-resident pressure, probably still a lot of local pressure, but, you know, so it was like a, you know, a cutoff. I had to just decide. And then once you, once you figure out, well, I wouldn't mind being here and pick a, a spot. And most of my spots, I look at, well, I look at the state first, look at all the big cities and just try to find an area that's the middle point of all the big cities, like stay as far away from the bigger cities as you can. Well, that's, that's what I like to do, um, which you don't always have to do, but that's my first starting point. And just you know, look look away from the city. So I find a find an area, and then I look. Well, what's the public land around there? Because really, right now, that's all I have. So you look and see where, like, if I was here, how many spots can I get to within an hour? And Missouri is one of those states that just has land. Just about everywhere. A lot in the south, a lot in the southern end. So I didn't want to go way in the south. I figured the deer were getting smaller. But uh, 
so, so once I figure out how many spots I can hit, then you just have to pull the trigger. Well, where am I going to stay? So that was the first thing I did is I just picked a spot. And I'm not going alone. I'm going with some friends. So we all agreed. And I'm kind of a guy that picks the spots usually and gets things rolling. So we did that, and I, I just found a Found a spot. I found a couple bow-only spots. There's a couple big ones. So I picked I picked an area that was near one of those big bow-only spots and got just found a uh, cabin. And that's how I like to do a lot of the hunts. I don't really like camp. I mean, I like to camp, but I like to be fully focused on deer hunting, not you know, being up shivering all night or wet, or, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like, you know, cabins are usually been great. So that's what I usually look for. Some kind of cabin. Cool. So, uh, did that, got a place, got a cabin. And then, then that's how I started my list. I just listed out, you know, listed out all the bow only areas. That's my starting point. Um, right now I'm still, I'm still looking. I know where we're going to stay, know what town we're going to be in. I have this list of bow only areas and I just, now I'm just going to keep looking, looking, looking. And, uh, another thing I might do is I might for, um, two or three days, I'll probably book somewhere else to stay, maybe in the Northern part of the state. And since this is my first time in Missouri, we'll have our main hub. And then for maybe two or three nights, I might take a three-hour ride somewhere. And just to see you all is the north so much better than where I picked or whatever, you know. This is my first year there. Interesting. And that's what I'll just do. And I'll I'll just pick the place apart and I'll look at it online and I'll look. You know, and I'll just, I'll try to cover, the first year I'll try to cover as much area as I possibly can. At least get a peek at as much stuff as I can. And just go from there. Yeah. Hopefully I'm going to find something. That's always uh, the big question. Yeah. <laughs> it is, but hey, if you, nothing will ever happen if you don't leave, if you don't do something, if you don't just, you, you got to just decide to go and go yeah i think that's a lot of people probably get hung up with wanting to do this and not really knowing what to do so they don't do it but what's the worst that can happen you just got to really just if you like to hunt you just got to go for it yeah absolutely you have to for for someone who hears this and is like, wow, I would love to do something like that. Maybe maybe they don't have as much time as you have, but they want to take some vacation time and get out to some different place and try to pull off a hunt like this. You, you've talked through a lot of the different things you're doing, but what would you say is like the most important thing? Like If you could leave someone with one piece of advice for doing some type of hunt like this, some type of trip like this, what would you want to leave that person with? What kind of advice? Hmm. Uh... You know, the, just what I was just saying is just don't think about it. Just just go, maybe you know, and let let 
something happen, let something good happen. I mean, the first step might be the biggest. It might be just getting out the door, leaving your house. Maybe, you know, I don't know, maybe somebody's homesick or whatever, but you just got to leave and just, you know, have fun. You you know, I, I go with friends of mine and we could probably kill nothing and we'd still have a lot of fun. Right. Guaranteed. Cause I mean, we like, if I go with my friends out hunting, we have a blast. We, we cook, uh, we all bring stuff that we've harvested, you know, throughout the year. We always eat these big, we cook ourselves and, you know, we're eating like squid I caught out of the ocean and, wow. you know, and trout these guys, you know, caught out of the lakes around here, you know, moose, stew, or <laughs> any, any. <laughs> so we, we have a good time, you know, you know, aside from the hunting, but, uh, just, just like approach it as a fun thing, not, you know, it's, it shouldn't be a burden or pressure or anything like that. You should be, I think, excited to leave and see something new and keep a good attitude and you know if it doesn't pan out then do try something else you know if you know if you just if you do your it's easy to do research these days with the computers you just you, you could find out just about anything yeah um you go on hunting forums and you know there's tons of real nice people else I don't know if anyone's going to give you their public land honey hole, but you, you wouldn't believe the things you can find out. Yeah. So, yeah, I would just say you just got to have fun. Yeah. Speaking of uh, speaking of things that people get hung up on, though, you mentioned some people just need to just that first step's the hardest. Get out the door and try it. Another one of the things I think that keeps people from trying one of these things is the cost. You know, imagining that a trip like this is really expensive. Is there anything that you've done um, to be able to make this a little bit more budget friendly? Anything that you would recommend to try to make this a more affordable type of trip for people? Yeah, um, I guess the way I view it is you could do, uh, if someone wants to get out there and do it, you could go with an outfitter and you know, I don't know what the prices are like these days, but say the hunt is three or 4,000 or whatever for that same money, you can hunt two or three States or maybe even more with lodging and everything you could, you know, you could, uh, or, uh, you can hunt one state cheap for half as much. So I kind of compared it to an outfitted hunt, but, um, if you just, if you just pick the right states, there's a few states with two buck limits. So right, right there, you know, instead of one deer, you can maybe get two. Um, if you, like I said, I, I go hunting with friends most of the time and we'll get a cabin. So you you could find a cabin for maybe who knows a hundred bucks a night, and if you have a couple friends with you, well then it's you know depending on how many people, you know four guys or three guys or two whatever you do you get the 
the cost just goes down. And, you know, if you, if you have some friends and the driving too, like the big expenses on these hunts is the driving out there and gas and wherever you're going to stay. And then sometimes tags cost non-resident tags are a little bit, but, um, yeah. And if you're, depends where you're willing to stay. If you want to camp, you can really probably go cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, but compared to an outfitted hunt, I say you could do three or four times as much for the same amount of money. If you really plan it right. 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 And yeah. I, I've done, uh, I've done where I've hunted maybe four, maybe even five States in one year. Uh, with two of them being right here in New York and Massachusetts. And then I've, I've done up to three Midwest States in one trip. Wow. And I I know not everyone can do that, but you know, and if you can't, or maybe someday you want to do that, just start by going to one state and spend as much time as you can. If you can't spend three weeks and spend, you know, I always say a little more than a week. <laughs> it just seems like a week is just never enough. It's tight. That's for sure. It's never enough. You just need a little bit more. Yeah. And then if you get a, if you get a tag like an Iowa tag, you, you, why would you want to waste that? It took you four years to get it or five years, and you're going to haunt there for a week? That's crazy. You got to, you know. Milk it. Put, put in the time. Put in the time in a good location, and I think I think you'll get onto something. I mean, bucks in the raw are different than than maybe hunting buck beds because you know with, with a buck bed, you know you might displace the buck you're hunting, but when it's rut season, basically all the bucks are almost displaced. They're either by another hunter or a doe or whatever, their ranges just widen right out. And, you know, you're not going to burn a spot because, well, maybe you burned the buck that lived right near there, but there's going to be three or four other bucks expanding their range into where you are. So you might get on an unknown buck. Yeah. Is there anything else that you do um, during the rut to make you successful that we haven't talked about yet? You know, is there any other things you're looking for when choosing where to set up or any aggressive, other aggressive techniques that we haven't talked about calling or decoying or cameras or anything like that? I mean, is there anything else you're doing to, to pull off these rut hunts? No, uh, I use a lot of regular techniques. Uh, I like to be, uh, you know, I go as scent free as I can, although it's not a regimen. It's just, um, it's just so, you know, it's just so that whatever smell you do leave behind, it dissipates quickly. Just, you know, just just make it so you're not leaving a big footprint. You're just sneaking in. You're you're probably never going to beat a deer's nose while you're in a stand. If that thing gets downwind from you, there's really no cleanliness that's going to save you. <laughs> tough, but, uh, it's tough, you know, just, sure. just normal, normal, uh, you know, scent, you know, just try to be clean. And then I 
sometimes use a ground call, sometimes use rattle and antlers. I've had luck with both, but I've had, you know, for every hundred times you blow a grunt call, one time might be, you know, you might get some kind of response and the same with rattling. You just got to do it at the right time. Otherwise, you know, just, they only work when they work. When the deer, <laughs> you know, sure. they only, yeah, well, you know, you're not going to rattle anything up in September, probably. You might, I don't know, but, yeah. you know, you, there's more appropriate times to do things like that. Otherwise, I don't want the deer to know I'm there. I don't want to grunt to them. I don't want to rattle. I just want to be a leaf in a tree and, you know, not clue them into where they are if you can help it. You just try to, you know, when you're walking in, you know, you don't want to touch everything that you're walking by. You just want to duck in there and just a little thing like, you know, why would you want to like grab brush on your way by? You're probably just left a big, who knows what you left. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, most of the stuff I do is, is pretty typical except for the length of time, I would say. Yeah. And, and effort. And maybe the amount of time I spend, you know, looking for places online or, I mean, I can't do it physically, so I, you know, I spend who knows how many hours mulling things over and looking and looking online and looking online again and countless, countless hours and really, uh, you know, wired to hunt. That's a pretty good name. I I kind of feel <laughs> I, <laughs> I kind of feel like I'm wired to hunt. You know, <laughs> that's awesome. I, no, you, really. I mean, you know. I, I'm definitely wired on it. It's, you know, I think about it. I don't, probably not a day goes by without some thought of deer or hunting or, you know, what I'm going to do yeah. hunting. I'm right there I mean, with you. I mean, I live in the woods. Like, a lot of people aren't as lucky as I am. I I can look out any window in my house and I'm looking at a dense forest. I, I live... I live in a state forest, actually. Um, so my land just blocks up to thousands of acres. So I'm, I, I literally live in the woods, and I've always been near the woods, and I've always lived in the woods. But and it just helps to be tuned in to as much as you can be tuned into. I mean, I'm here. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't know what it is, but. I definitely, definitely feel like I'm wired to hunt. I, I, yeah. uh, I, I like to hear that. I like to hear that. The, the, the name <laughs> resonates. <laughs> it does. It does. I mean, it's just, I don't think, I, no one else in my family's wired to hunt. I can sure tell you that. Yeah. So something, something happened to me. I don't know what, but. It definitely is. Uh, a, I think people. For a certain subset of people, we're just wired a certain way. There's something inside of us that this type of thing just connects with you. And, you know, 
you just can't stop thinking about it. You can't stop obsessing over these things. You can't stop thinking about, eh, what if I try this? Or what if I try that? Or what are the deer doing right now? Or what are they going to be doing next month? And, um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's, there's exactly. some of us out here that just, uh, we can't, we can't ever stop scratching that itch. That's for sure. No, it's crazy. And it's just something that's, it's just something that's in some of us, I guess. I just can't, it's kind of almost as like unexplainable, but it's there. Yeah. Yeah. And just the total desire to be there, you know, and if you don't have that, you know, you could probably learn everything there is to learn and still not be successful. You really, I guess, kind of have to be wired on. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is a good, a good term, a good, just overall description. Yeah. Well, uh, I think, I think with this really great plug for wired to hunt, I'm going to say that's a good place to wrap it up too. So, <laughs> yeah, all right. well, that's great. so Eric, wow. this is, this has been really fun. Um, I, I got one, I've got one final question for you. And I just would like to hear about what you consider your your favorite hunt, maybe, or maybe your most successful trip or hunt. Can you tell us a story of of whatever that most memorable or best hunt would be from your past? Oh wow! Uh, geez, there's too many to even. I I really don't have. I don't know. I I can't. I don't really think I have a best hunt. I I I couldn't really. I mean, there's hunts where, you know, I've got my biggest deer, but maybe they're not the best hunt. But, uh, ah, there's just every one is awesome. I can remember every detail almost. I can remember the years, the dates. I can remember what happened. Some of the deer that got away. (laughs) All right. That was was an unfair question. (laughs) What about, what about this? Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna test your memory now because you just told me you can remember every one of your hunts and the dates and all this kind of stuff. So how about this? Tell me about if you can. Um, how about your 2013 season? And can you tell me about one successful kill during the 2013 season on one of your trips? Can you tell me the details of one of those? Yeah, um, 2013. Um, wasn't the best year because my area got hit by EHD in 2012. So 2012, we watched phenomenal area go to the greatest, to the worst (laughs) in, in however many months that took. So 2013 was the first year of the comeback that, you know, that I was wishing to go into the season and just praying that I didn't see any more of that awful PhD that I saw in 2012. And I went, I hunted, uh, I was in Nebraska and South Dakota and I wound up shooting a nine pointer in Nebraska. Um, it went one of my favorite stands that's like become a permanent fixture. Uh, it has been. But uh, it was called the hole in the fence spot, and uh, I wound up getting a nice chocolate horn, pretty nice nine pointer, which I thought was pretty good due uh, due to the 
EHD that just devastated the area. I didn't know if we were going to get anything or not. But, uh, so yeah, that was, uh, I got a nine pointer in Nebraska and I remember, remember it well. What, what made that hole in the fence stand so good? Why has that been the place you go back to over and over? Um, it's, uh, the place I was haunting has these, I call them finger draws. It's just like prairie, but every steep ravine that can't be tilled or, you know, grazed by the farmer, it just, it, they make a, uh, steep ravine. And so there's a lot of area within those fingers that can't be traveled, but usually on the lips of those things, right before it goes down, they'll start to travel those edges. And this particular edge uh, squeezed up with prairie on both sides of it. And the thing's a, like a finger going east-west. And then the further squeeze, there was a farmer's fence that kind of cut off half of the good area. So it just seemed like all these deer would just always head to this like a hole where like, like, the fence ended. And... Uh, that's what made that area so good is it just pinched everything down yeah. so good that it was just one of those great, great spots. Yeah, and it also like led up into uh, one of the only cornfields in the area. So when the corn was there planted, that made a really good, really good spot. Yeah, that sounds like a dynamite rut spot. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah I killed a couple deer there. Um a friend of mine actually hunted there the day after, uh, oh, this was a couple of years previous to 2013, but, uh, I had killed, uh, like 140 inch 11 pointer and my friend used the stand a few days later and killed 170 something inch deer Jeez. out of that spot. So, wow. Great spot. Sounds like it. Well, that's yeah. what it's all about during the rut. I mean, if there's anything I think to take away from this conversation, it's you find these key rut locations, you work your tail off and hunt as hard as you can for as long as you can during the rut. And if you do those two things and have a positive attitude, good things can happen, right? That's right, man. Just stick it out, spend some time, have fun, meet as many people as you can, and just you're bound to run into something good. You just, you just, you have to. <laughs> there you go. Well, Eric, that I think is some very solid, good advice for all of us. So, I appreciate taking the time to do this and to chat. And uh, and thank you, Eric. And best of luck this coming season. Hey, thanks a lot, man. And uh, best of luck to you this coming season. And that will bring this episode to an end. Just a couple quick things before we go, though. First, if you haven't yet left a rating or review for this podcast on iTunes, and if you have an extra 30 seconds, could you possibly go and do that for us? It is a quick thing to do, and your honest feedback is a huge help. Thank you in advance for doing that. Next, I also want to give a big thanks to our partners who help make this podcast possible. So big thanks to Sitka Gear, Yeti Coolers, Matthews Archery, Maven Optics, Whitetail Institute of North America, Carbon Express, and Huntera Maps. If you're enjoying this show, if you'd like to help keep it going, a really simple way to do that is to just send a message or a tweet or an email to some of these companies and let them know that you appreciate them supporting Wired to Hunt. Something as simple as that can actually make a big difference. And finally, 
thank you all for listening. I hope this one got you fired up for a rutcation of your own. And in the meantime, I hope you'll stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.